Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. You may have heard on the news last week that the independent scientist, environmentalist and futurist James Lovelock died at his home in Dorset. He was 103 years old. Creator of the Gaia Hypothesis, he was regarded by some as one of the greatest environmental thinkers of our time. In 2019, on the occasion of his 100th birthday, he spoke with Mooney Goes Wild. I'm in Southampton Central with Dr. Richard Collins, waiting to board a train to Weymouth. Captain 4 from the 07.59 Southwestern Railway service to Weymouth, calling at Totten, Ashurst New Forest. We're on our way to meet James Lovelock. Well, he is an absolutely extraordinary man. And now, um, he's a self-made man. Uh, who became an inventor, a first-class inventor, and invented several very important pieces of equipment. He's also an environmentalist, one of the best, if not the best-known environmentalist in the world, but he is a controversial figure. Mm -hmm. Not so beloved by the scientific community, however. He wrote a series of books. He's a writer. He's written 12 books, I think it is, to date. Very readable, very provocative, very colourful books. And he has made the most dire predictions mm -hmm. about the planet and its future and the future of humanity in the past. What's his connection to Ireland, Richard? Well, actually, yes, you, literally you should mention that because one of his achievements was the invention of an electron detector. This is a little device which can measure strange gases in the atmosphere. He came to Ireland because... I think it may be because the air was pure in Ireland for the westerly winds coming in from the Atlantic to do tests on the atmosphere in its purest form in Europe sort of thing. Now, it detected uh, chlorofluorocarbons. These are the, the gases released in things like refrigeration and stuff like that, man-made compounds that created the hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica that was a major scare decades ago. But he invented other things as well. There's a little device for measuring the condition of the atmosphere on Mars, which is above in the Viking lander as we speak. And that was another of his inventions. And he did a lot of work on freezing hamsters down to very low temperatures and reviving them and this kind of thing. Very inventive man always thinking up new ideas, new ways of doing things, controversial, a bit of a maverick, but a very colourful man uh, indeed. he's best known for his Gaia theory. Yes, yes, the Gaia hypothesis as it was. But it is a, a view that um, the, the Earth and life on Earth are in a kind of symbiotic relationship. The sort of thing he has in mind is the oxygen in the air is produced by um, plants. Mm -hmm. uh, the carbon dioxide in the air is produced by animals. And there are lots of similar balances in nature. And he would say that the two work in harmony with each other, that he has this notion of a kind of earth goddess idea. It focuses off life and onto the planet and life together, inorganic and organic, as part of the same system. My goodness. That kind of an idea. And Gaia was the goddess of the earth. 
the yeah, guy. Well, now this idea um, is more or less rejected by science, uh, but it is uh, loved by the green movement and the new agey kind of people. Now, but uh, it is an extraordinarily um, stimulating idea because if you read works by fellows like Richard Dawkins, Roger Scruton, the English philosopher. You will find references to Gaia. You know, it's all over the place. Uh, you will always find a reference to Gaia in any book about the environment. So it's a much quoted idea. It's an idea which has occupied people's thoughts a lot. Do you say but Stephen Jay Gould? Uh, would, but they talk about it to rejected men. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, well, do you reject it or accept it before we meet the great man himself? I am the midwife. I want him to develop the ideas for us. Uh, not to uh, challenge them because he'd blow me out the window if I challenged them, I think, with these facts and figures. This train is now approaching its final stop. This is Weymouth. Please remember to take all your personal items with you when you leave the train. Thank you for travelling with Southwest Trains. Hi, we're going to a place called Abbotsbury. Abbotsbury, yeah. It's a 20-minute journey from Weymouth to the beautifully preserved historic village of Abbotsbury on the Dorset Jurassic Coast. Abbotsbury is famed for its swannery. It was established by the Benedictine monks who built a monastery here in the 11th century. Back then, the monks farmed the swans to produce food for their lavish banquets. Today, it's a sanctuary for over 600 mute swans and said to be the only place in the world where you can walk through the heart of a colony of nesting mute swans. Have you always been here or how long have you been here? No, about ten years I think. We used to live in Devon, which is not far away, just not too far from Ireland. James and his wife Sandy lived just a stone's throw from the 28-kilometre-long Chesil Beach, made up entirely of pebbles of various rock types, from the size of a pea to a potato. I think Derek said coffee. Yes. Yeah, Is coffee would be lovely, Sandy. How do you Hello. Take it? Hello. <laughs> Just milk. Milk, no sugar. No sugar. Say hello to James Lovelock, Richard. Yes, hello, James. How are you? Great to meet you at last. We had you on the programme some years ago, a very memorable encounter we had. Not slowing with age, James Lovelock grabbed our attention many times since we last spoke with him on Mooney Goes Wild in 2007, then aged 88. But his outlook has never been more pertinent and indeed stark as it is today. He has recently celebrated his 100th birthday, in a year which has seen the hottest ever temperatures recorded across the planet. He warns that 80% of human life on Earth will perish by the year 2100 because of the climate emergency, and that the few breeding pairs of people that survive will be in the Arctic, where the climate remains tolerable. His new book on artificial intelligence is entitled Novacine, the coming of age of hyperintelligence, and looks at the future of our species. In it, he proposes that we are entering a new era in which cyborgs will play the central role. This, he feels, is the next step in natural selection, where cyborgs can produce and evolve. They will think thousands of times faster than humans, and they will look at us as we look at plants. But he is best known for his work on the Gaia Hypotheses, which suggests 
a fundamental interconnectedness between all living organisms and that the earth functions as a self-regulating system. So, thank you very much. It's lovely to meet you, lovely to be in your home and thank you to your wife Sandy for allowing us to intrude oh, the, least we can do. The, the way we are intruding today. Can you take me back to your childhood, James? Tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I, I was born in a strange place called Letchworth Garden City. It was in the middle of Britain, just about 30 miles north of London. It was founded by Quakers. It was a, mo a new modern garden city, quite a pleasant place. And opposite it was a common land. And uh, that was in the, the time when uh, commons were, really were commons. You could, it meant that there was uh, all the wildlife, everything. And uh, I could go straight from my home across the road, which had no traffic on it at all <laughs> in those days. Uh, and it was a road called Icknield Way, which was an ancient trackway that ran from somewhere near here all the way across the middle of England. My goodness. Some, some, somewhere north. And the Neolithic people used to use. That was some road. It was indeed. <laughs> yes, that's right. But it, you didn't, it didn't cause my grandmother, who was looking after me, any, any anxiety, because there's no traffic on it no. at all. Different times, indeed. Yes, they were. And is that where you got your love of nature, do you think? I think so, yes, because... I could go in the common. And my father was, I think, one of the, um, what you might call, hunter-gatherer. Uh, the reason being that people were very poor in those days, and his father died uh, at 50, leaving a family of 13 children uh, with no support whatever. And there was either the workhouse, which was unmentionable uh, um, um, almost, or, or, or hunting and gathering. And uh, the countryside, as I said, the, was wide open, and they lived by well, what they could get from the land. And was it like that for you too when you were a child? When you were not a child, you don't remember the details of those kind of things. Uh, I have no sort of sense of deprivation or anything like that, quite the opposite. I used to love going for walks with my father. He would show me tricks like... They don't know nowadays, like tickling for trout. You, know, you put your hand under the bank and bring it up slowly uh, where there's some trout. My God, the rivers must have been full of fish at that time, were they? They were, yes. Not like now. No, but tickling for trout, the idea of going to That's a river, finding trout close enough that you could put your hand in and literally the, the, tickle their bellies. That's right. <laughs> well, things were different then. Mm. They were different right up until the start of World War Two, And then there was a great shortage of food everywhere. I, uh, I expect you must have felt it in Ireland, the same as we did. I read that you were a conscientious objector to the war. I was brought up a Quaker, and that was the duty of Quakers, really. You, you could assist in the war, like being a, 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 a saving people on the battlefield and things like that, but you mustn't kill anyone. I stuck with that for quite a while. But things during that war got so bad that uh, I've, I've resigned in the end. So what was your contribution to the war effort? Largely developing methods of protecting people against burns. 
I was working at the Medical Research Council in London. Burns, in many ways, were the most unpleasant and serious injury of warfare. So what did you do exactly? What did you invent? One of the questions, which I now realise had a very different origin, was how much was the heat flux in uh, watts going onto your skin that would cause a first, second or third degree burn? Now, they wanted us to do experiments with the shaved skin of rabbits, and neither my colleague nor I like that idea very much. We're not naturally cruel people. So we burnt ourselves. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Well, (laughs) what else could you do? And it was strange. It was exceedingly painful. But after about a week... Something in your brain said, what the hell are you doing? And turned turned off the pain. And and I could do a a party trick, take a lighted cigarette and put it on my arm and produce a burn without feeling anything. Can I just tell our listeners, not that they need to be told, we're not suggesting you try this at home, but you literally burnt yourself. Oh, yes. And what was your method of dealing with this burn then that was made available to soldiers and sailors and other people involved in war? Well, in in various ways, but I realise now that the real reason we were asked to do this has nothing to do with protecting soldiers and sailors or anybody else. It was to do with the atom bomb, because the main danger of that was heat radiation, and that they just wanted to know what, what were the consequences, because if you knew how mu- many watts of energy were coming in, they could work out just how many people would be. Not a nice reason, but we didn't know that. But you did discover some treatments for people who had been badly burnt. Oh, no, we didn't. But uh, using the evidence that we had, scientific evidence, others did. And uh, that, that, I think, was very worthwhile. Was your background in in medicine? Not really. I I have a degree from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which which is medical, if nothing else. You were saying as a child you had no sense of deprivation, but you're aware of the fact that you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth, presumably. So uh, did you have money? Did your parents go? No, no, no. Not at all. When I left school, I went and took a job... Uh, with a firm of uh, consultants who solved problems for anything connected with the photographic industry. Everything from the production of gelatin, which was in those days used, because long before digital stuff, uh, used at the back of the material on which a picture was laid. Uh, Right from that, the production of gelatin to... um, the synthesis of coloured eyes for colour photography. So it it taught me a really broad range of science. Well, more than science, it was called practically engineering, really, without the wrong attitudes that you get in universities, where the only thing that matters is passing an examination, oh not knowing anything. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> to be academics Sorry, and tearing their hair I'm, out at the small property. not meant to be offensive. <laughs> I'm sure you don't have, treat your students that way. 
No, well, well, I don't have students, uh, James, so so I'm all right. But uh, you lived through the most extraordinary time scientifically. In 1919, you were born. The equations of general relativity were only four years old. Quantum mechanics was only just starting. Now, they must have come as a shock to a scientist at that time. And uh, were, were you surprised? Were you sceptical about these theories, which are now accepted? What, at four years old? Well, not at four. <laughs> but uh, you, you were a precocious child, I expect, when you were 12, 14, oh. 15. These were still very controversial subjects. They, certainly, they were indeed. And let me give you an example. I went, was lucky enough to get to what's called a grammar school. And uh, they are the pupils of the 1% who pass an examination of the local population. I was lucky enough to pass it. And... Uh, there was a boy came in when I was about 14 years old and said, I say, I've spent the summer holidays sorting up on the quantum theory and it's really quite interesting. <laughs> and um, he said, but if, if you, you're all in, interested, let's talk about it during coming term. And we did. And uh, I, I learned all about the wave particle theory at a time when degree students weren't, didn't, didn't even have it on their syllabus. So you could learn an awful lot from companions who who were knowledgeable. So you found out where you were wrong in all kinds of ways. And has this been a pattern through life? I mean, science is about finding out where you're wrong, not finding out where you're right. To change the model is what, is what you're trying to do. So you must have found out many times in the course of your life that what you believed was actually not true. What were the most significant shocks scientifically to you in your life? With me, it wasn't a matter of finding out that I was wrong. It was finding out that it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, because I, I'm much more of an inventor than a scientist. In fact, I've supported myself during my life inventing things that, that interested companies or people or whatnot who paid me enough to run a laboratory in uh, Wiltshire and, as you well know, in Ireland, in uh, at Adrigal. So it it wasn't a case of finding out I was wrong so much as finding out it didn't work. If it didn't work, then it was obviously wrong. <laughs> what was your, your greatest invention? What was the really outstanding no. invention in your life that you have? Well, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> These two things. Oh, my gosh. I'll come back because I'm comfortable there. That was a thing called the electron capture detector, and it found the uh, CFCs in the atmosphere, strangely, uh, over Ireland. Yes, uh, the, over Britain and Ireland, but you did a lot yes. of work over Ireland. Was Ireland superior because it had a cleaner air or was less Much polluted? Cleaner. So you went yes. there for that reason. Yeah, absolutely, you're so right. And uh, you're lucky people. <laughs> Can you, you explain them. to our listeners and to me exactly what the electron capture detector invented in 1958 by your good <laughs> self is, what it does and why it was so important? At the time, it was the most sensitive device for finding contaminants in the air uh, that was in existence. And not just slightly more sensitive... Uh, it was sensitive by an order of uh, several million times more sensitive. Indeed, I think it 
now uh, that it's a quantum device, really. Although at the time, being an inventor, I was less concerned with what made it work than uh, having it work. It has another virtue, which is quite rare with devices. It's an absolute device. In other words, by knowing what the current flowing in it when there's a signal comes in, you can calculate accurately the amount of the compound in the air. Because the number of electrons lost is equal to the number of molecules of the compound. And it's a simple bit of arithmetic to calculate the exact amount. Tell to me about the experiments you carried out using this device. Uh, well, there weren't so much to experiments, it was monitoring. Okay. We set up in Ireland uh, at Adrigal. Uh, I suppose it was a bit of a naughty thing to do for a foreigner to come there uh, and set up a measuring station. But it was a pretty harmless thing, and it, it, it was, a gen I think, a general benefit. I didn't feel that I was really trespassing, if you like. Nobody's thing to mind anyway, still, least of all the locals. <laughs> Rather, they were very helpful. The, the reason I did it was quite simple. Whenever the wind came off Europe, uh, we got a haze in southern England, and you couldn't see more than about half a mile. The further west you went, the less the uh, obstruction. And in Ireland, uh, it, it was still there, and... I don't know whether you know Adrigal, but there's a lighthouse in the bay just opposite. And uh, on a bad day of smog coming from Europe, you couldn't see the lighthouse. Um, but uh, in southern England, it was about anything like as bad as 100 yards and really bad days. The, nobody would believe me when I said, I think this is smog coming from Europe. I said, oh, no, no, it must be some exhalation from the ground, something biological, you know. I thought, well, I've got to prove it. And the best way to prove it is to find some substance that is unequivocally man-made. There's no natural source whatsoever of it. And it turned out the CFCs were ideal. There's no, nothing in nature makes fluorine compounds, uh, apart from a rare plant in South Africa, I soon found, yeah, I could, met with this device, measure the CFCs coming across from Europe when it was smoggy and compare it with the amount coming across when it, the air was clear. And when the air was clear, it was three times less than uh, when the, the air was smoggy. So I had my answer. It was the, yes, the smog that was coming from Europe. Well, that was that. So the first evidence that we, humans, were polluting the air. That's right. But nobody took the slightest notice. I published about three papers on it in Atmospheric Environment and other journals, and there was no response. I mean, there was the, we were apart from other scientists who wanted to know the method and things like that. And it wasn't until the Americans got this idea that it was destroying the ozone layer, the, the fan... <laughs> really started being blown, and uh, there was a great fuss then. James, you are associated with the Gaia hypothesis. Now, how did you come to frame this idea that the Earth and life are, are in a symbiotic relationship and interact with each other? 
Or could you explain it to us? Well, when, when you've got a gadget like this and you go around measuring things in the atmosphere, you find a lot of strange compounds. I mean, one compound that you pick, could easily pick up in, at Adrigal in Ireland was methyl iodide. Now, it's a nasty, poisonous, carcinogenic compound, and it shouldn't be at all outside the fume covered of a laboratory. It shouldn't be in the atmosphere. Fortunately, however, this device is incredibly sensitive, and there's only a part per million of it in the atmosphere at Adrigol and elsewhere. But it's there, all right. It's unequivocally there. And uh, the, the question came, why? What, what on earth is nature making this strange, strange compound? Then I looked around and found there were all sorts of other things, like dimethyl sulfide. They nearly all were methyl something rather methyl selenide, all, all kinds of very strange things, things you wouldn't want to smell of or <laughs> wouldn't want to breathe, but they're there. And uh, that led me to wonder, why are they there? And then thinking about it, I realised that iodine is absolutely essential for health of animals. And if you were un uh, unlucky enough to, uh, to live in the middle of Russia, it's a long way from the sea. You've got to rely on the wind blowing this tiny amount of stuff all the way across. And so it's quite, a, quite common to get uh, thyroid diseases like goiter if you live in Russia and whatnot. And that's why they were so sensitive to that explosion at that Chernobyl place where there was radioactive iodine. If that had happened here, it wouldn't have stuck in us because we've got plenty of iodine living near the sea and so near nearly everybody in Ireland. So that got me wondering, this seems to be an economy of nature, that the things that are needed are being produced by plants and animals and whatnot and distributed around the world. And that immediately suggests a system that is looking after itself. And the more I looked, the more I found the evidence that suggested that uh, the Earth was a self-regulating system. And gradually, as time went by, one began to realise the consequences of this. For example, the production of CO2 by us, uh, I mean naturally, just by breathing, and the animals breathe, is balanced by the plants taking it up. And the, 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 the whole thing begins to look far more purposeful. And this and other evidence led me to Gaia. Could you state the principle itself? You're, you're going beyond saying that it's just a metaphor. Is it just a metaphor oh, or no. is there actually... Yeah, no, no that, my critics said it was a met, just a metaphor. Uh, they didn't like it because it was contrary to what they'd been teaching. But was it really, after all? I mean, uh, what you said there it was, it was common knowledge, really. That That's right, that, that but it wasn't put together as one lump, yes. so to speak. Well, you were suggesting a kind of world soul or, or an ancient earth goddess kind of oh, no. notion, are you? No? no, I think that's going too far. There might be one, but that's, <laughs> that's another matter. What is your current model of Gaia? No, it's the same as it's always been. It, it is the living system, in a sense. It's not so different from you or me. 
I mean, we take in things and excrete things to, to the environment. And I'm not talking about pollution, I'm talking about just natural things. Uh, and so does everything else. And uh, it keeps a balance, and that's what keeps the Earth a remarkable planet. You see, it shouldn't be here at all with living things on it. It should be another Venus, and impossibly hot. So once life began, it set up this kind of regulatory system to create an environment which would continue to sustain it. This is, exactly. this is your model. Exactly. Uh, now, it's a very powerful system. And this would happen on any planet that life managed to colonize, you think? That's sort of putting me to make a very firm statement. It would happen frequently enough to get people quite interested. This has always been the case on this planet, but the planet has changed a great deal. Not there just aren't any other planets with life on. When that we know of. <laughs> and I, I know, I go further than that. I don't think there are any. Why, any, do, you, why do you say that? Anywhere. After all, quadrillions of galaxies, more galaxies than there are people on the Earth, with quadrillions of stars in each of them, and uh, quadrillions upon quadrillions of planets outside. It is almost impossible that, that life hasn't evolved elsewhere. Well, well just a minute. They, they fall into two categories. There's the universe, which is just everything, and as you say, it has all sorts of stars and stuff in it. I don't know what goes on there. That's not my parish, if you like. <laughs> but uh, for the cosmos, which is the stars and planets and so on, that originated with the Big Bang, mm -hmm. there hasn't been time yet for planets like the Earth to appear because there hasn't been time yet for stars like the Sun to appear Uh, and live near supernova that have explosions that produce the debris from which our, our planet assembled itself. Well, it happened here. Are you saying it couldn't happen elsewhere or didn't happen elsewhere? Oh, it didn't happen elsewhere in the universe, but it did, it did happen in the cosmos, perhaps. But so far, there has not been time to get a planet developed like the Earth, as far as we can see. This self-regulating system of Gaia uh, has somehow gone off the rails uh, with us, or has it? When you say gone off the rails, you mean with us, because we've been running contrary to the desires of the planet. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Oh, well, I, I I'm not responsible for human <laughs> behavior, thank God. <laughs> Free will seems to be a fairly general thing, and we can do it. But our ancestors have less of it. I mean, you can't think of a, a dinosaur that lived some time back having a lot of free will and being able to pollute the atmosphere. It, it's really, pollution seems to go with intelligence. Your model is that life and Earth are symbiotic and they will only do what benefits life. But here we have a case where life is damaging itself and it's destroying well, yes, the system. Isn't that something of a contradiction that if it is a Gaia system that it, it spawns something that destroys itself? When you say contradiction, contradiction of what I would ask. It's a bad thing, I've got to grant you that, but what is it a contradiction of? 
Well, uh, if the model is that we have uh, Gaia, a planet with the Gaia system keeping it nice and safe uh, for our life, and then suddenly, after thousands of millions of years, it spawns a species which destroy or is heading towards the destruction of, of that life. And does that not seem odd that Gaia didn't take care of it earlier on? Well, well said. But <laughs> you, I would answer that although it may not be the right answer, uh, by saying, well, at least the system produced us and we discovered that we were bad and uh, are doing things about it. I mean, there was a Paris conference to cut, cut back the emission of carbon dioxide, and I think that was a very good idea. Mm-hmm. But is it too late? We shall discover. What do you think, though? You're a futurist. <laughs> I think it's dodgy. I think we're near the edge. The Earth could easily be destroyed by foolish action on our part. But I'm a hopeful, cheerful person. I don't see it happening. I think we'll get by all right. But it'll be a close thing. Will we all live in the same countries we're in now today, in 2019? Will we? Will we? Did you not suggest that... Putin is going to move into Siberia, he's going to colonize Siberia, that China oh, is going to colonize yeah. Africa, that the Americans are going to go over the border into Canada. As long as you're not talking about going to Mars or something like that. <laughs> well, I know <laughs> you were involved some time ago in, in, in studies of, of Mars as well. It's not where they go, it's what they're doing when they get there. Well, James, are we part of Gaia here today? Um, Derek and I are going oh, to we're, we're going to broadcast uh, your uh, your ideas and the ideas that you have created. Are the, is that Gaia fighting back against what's happening, bringing about a change in hearts and minds? Is 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 that part of the program? Is the Paris Conference Gaia trying to readjust things back to equilibrium? Is this a Gaia effect? But yeah, I, I think this is getting a bit um, religions creeping into it somewhere, and scientists don't on the whole approve of religion, do they? And vice versa. Thinking about it is only uh, important where it leads to the alteration of behaviour in such a way that's beneficial. We've got to stop burning fossil fuels. And not but be afraid of nuclear. I was going to come on to that, mm-hmm. uh, but I said, but what's the alternative? And you're one of those people who stands above the parapet and says nuclear I've always has had. always been the way forward. Yeah, absolutely. But there's so many lies have been told about it. I think it's largely there's so much money invested in coal and oil that it hampers the development of nuclear But people are afraid of nuclear disaster. People are afraid of nuclear war. Just the very term nuclear scares the life out of people. Well, and well, it should where it comes to nuclear war. It's a pretty awful thing to contemplate. But as far as producing energy, it's probably the safest form of energy in existence. In, In this country, which is, if anything, running down the nuclear installations, Per kilowatt hour of electricity produced, there are less deaths in the nuclear industry than any power industry, even including windmills in the country. So its record is exceedingly good. I know there was a mess at Chernobyl, but Russia's a strange place and who knows what was going on there. 
Well, now the main problem, it seems, with nuclear is the waste uh, and getting that waste into some place safe where it won't get out or harm anyone. Do you see waste as a problem for nuclear? No, I don't see it as a problem at all. I think that a great deal of propaganda has been put out by the carbon industries to about waste and things like that. Whereas in reality, Sandy and I were invited by the French, who probably run more nuclear than anybody, uh, to visit La Hague, the uh, waste disposal place, mm-hmm. and, uh, just opposite across the channel. And we went down in a room where beneath our feet were 25 years of waste deposited on the foot. I had my handheld radiation monitor, and so did the health physics officer from the French installation. And we were both reading numbers that were only very slightly above the level in here. In other words, totally harmless as far as... Well, that's why the French took you there. They made sure it would keep a very good... I'm very cynical. (laughs) (laughs) It's not very easy to turn (laughs) off. (laughs) That's true, that's true. Anyway, you're not worried about nuclear waste being a major difficulty of this thing. Now, you mentioned there windmills. When you were on the Mooney show back seven or eight years ago, you were very scathing about the wisdom of having windmills. You said they didn't work. Have you softened your attitude to windmills? No, I haven't. They, uh, they work up to a point. But what happens if you're in a long, cold winter and freezing and you can't even shave because water in the bowl is frozen, uh, and the only source of power is a windmill, and there's no, there's been no wind for days. I'll answer that. First of all, the wind is never stationary. Everywhere. everywhere. So if it's calm here, it'll be windy in Scotland or in Ireland or somewhere or France. So if you have a sufficiently large grid, the whole thing should even out fairly well. The other possibility is the battery in the home or the battery in the institution, which will charge up when the wind is strong and deliver electricity when the wind is low. What's wrong with that technology? It's far simpler. There's no waste. It converts the energy directly from the wind straight into electrical energy. No boilers and all the rest of it. No, that's a good argument. But I would need to see the figures on the relative cost of the two types of installation. The cost of nuclear is hugely inflated because the Greens and others who do not like the idea, God knows why, but they just don't like it, have pushed up the need to surround a nuclear installation with all kinds of protection that is not really needed at all. It's a very complex story. I'm not trying to dodge the issue, but to go into the full details of it would keep us to argue, well, talking, let's say, not arguing, all the afternoon. Well, it's hard to believe that all that energy up there in the sky and all around us, it's hard to believe that we shouldn't use that directly, such as we use sunlight directly in in photoelectric cells and so forth. It just seems a bit odd that we would go mining a mineral that's going to get progressively scarcer and scarcer. And indeed, the mining is is destructive as well. Uh, You were thinking of uranium. Yes. Now, the latest idea with the nuclear is to use thorium, which is four times as plentiful as uranium, and also one heck of a lot easier and safer to use because it, it, it's not, a, not much of a waste producer at all as a thorium reactor. 
So you're you're unrepentant, uh, unrepentant, uh, yeah. wind and 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 solar. Now another very interesting idea that you have come up with is uh, and another Gaian idea in a sense is the the idea that IT super intelligence will change the whole equation. So the the final kickback of uh, the the planet against us and our bad behavior is cyborgs. Can you explain your theory of cyborgs and how this will change everything? You're talking about my latest book? Yes. Yes. Well, a book is partly for entertainment, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's more of a what if than than a statement of fact. Yeah, but it is an interesting what if, and you couldn't have written that without having some glimmer of a belief in it. Well, I do. It's not for a different reason. I'm a very firm believer in Darwin. Mm -hmm. I think he had the right idea. And I think evolution will move us slowly towards a world where the lead creatures are not things like us, but more like AI devices. And I don't mean man-made at all. I think there's great confusion here. People talk about robots, and I, I think one should look on a no- robot as an automated vacuum cleaner rather than, a, <laughs> rather than anything very, very intelligent or something. No, I don't. I see that there, there was a thing produced by one of the AI people called AlphaGo, uh, which is more intelligent than in some ways than we are. And uh, it, just in that narrow little area, um, you like just like you could produce a, a robot that ran that ran faster than any human could. There's nothing special about a super intelligence on, on this small scale. You might explain what AlphaGo is exactly. I, I wish I could, but the, a rough description would be that it is a computing device. Mm-hmm which can play against a human component, the program. It's a Chinese program, I think, called Go, uh, where you have little beads. Yeah, it's, it's a game which is more complicated, as I understand it, than chess. Yes, yeah. it's more complicated because it's got many more beads than there are chess pieces. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's quite, quite, quite a problem. Uh, and, and anyway, AlphaGo is not a machine, but... A program that does it. And it beats the humans at this game. You think from there this new, would you call it a species is going to evolve? Yes. I think the animal-like creatures that we represent probably are like the dinosaurs. Their day is numbered. And you don't expect us to survive indefinitely and develop as humans, so to speak. I see it developing much more in the the way it can. The biggest difference between life as we are is, as my colleague Lynn Margulis put it very well, uh, we live in sort of kingdoms. There's the plant kingdom and there's the animal kingdom, and they're very different. And one of the biggest differences is speed. You see, we're roughly 10,000 times faster than a plant. 
And that's why Farmer Giles can look over his five-bar gate and watch his crops rotating. Um, <laughs> it, that's the way it is. And uh, the cyborgs uh, will be look over their gate, so to speak, at us and see something as slow as we see plants. That is where the future lies, I think. And you think we'll exist together? Oh, yes. Well, we exist with plants. Yeah, yeah, true, but will there still be 7 billion plus of us on the planet I don't at that know. stage? I have no idea. Well, what do you think? Well, I hope there's less. <laughs> you hope there's less, so who should survive? Ah, there's a question. It is. It's <laughs> <laughs> looking for an answer. <laughs> I think that's a rotten question to ask a customer like me. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, not even a customer. Give me a rotten answer. <laughs> no, I think there's too many of us on the planet. Well, we're in the animal kingdom. Hang on a sec, Richard. We're in the animal kingdom and it's survival of the fittest. So will it be survival of the fittest or survival of the most intelligent? What do you think? What Darwin said was the organism that will succeed is the one that leaves the most progeny. Most successful progeny. Mm, Yeah. Not enough to leave progeny if they go nowhere. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We have, what, five uh, kingdoms now. It depends on who you talk to, of course. But the the, the cyborgs are going to be a kingdom. Will they develop through natural selection the way the other kingdoms have? Is that why they will be a kingdom? Probably. They will be subject to natural selection just as anything else is. And they will decide that we, for instance, are a nuisance no, and destroying no, them. If, no. if they decide that, will they eliminate us in their interest, the way we have eliminated things that didn't no, that's suit the us? interesting thing about Gaia, really, is if the cyborgs, for example, or anything else came to the idea that they want to get rid of us, we're using too much space and making mm-hmm. too much mess and all the rest mm-hmm. of it, they couldn't do it because we're needed. They need us as much as we will in the future need them uh, for ideas. I mean, they'll be the best people to produce bright ideas to uh, offset the effects of a warming sun. The sun is increasing its output all the time, and that's the curse of our our planet. The uh, cyborgs are clever enough to invent ways, practical ways of offsetting that, I think. But the time scale on that, the change in the sun, is, is so slow. I mean, it's a it's, it's much slower time scale. Than no, it isn't. You think it's going to happen fairly soon? No, uh, well, you want to read the, uh, the book by our present astronomer royal, Martin Rees, on our final century. No, I'm afraid the warm-up is the biggest danger. And what we're doing with adding CO2 and whatnot and other greenhouse gases like methane is aggravating that that the the natural warm up of the sun and uh, it, it's something we should really worry about i think i think we are worried and think more people are becoming aware of the situation now but what's the solution what do we do well obviously we've got to stop driving cars around and fairly soon and it looks as if that's going to happen and they're going to switch to electric can we re-engineer the planet uh, to counteract the effects of the increasing temperature of the sun and so forth? Can we colonise Mars? Could we seed Mars with an atmosphere and grow plants which in turn would put out oxygen and take in carbon dioxide? Now, is it conceivable that in the fullness of time we can shift from this planet onto the Martian environment? Or is that a crazy idea? I probably 
I'm more familiar with Mars than most of the people you interview. You were the meant to ask. <laughs> no, I've got two pieces of hardware sitting on Mars that work, actually work. <laughs> uh, I measured the atmosphere and soil. NASA got me to make this for them because they knew that they could never get a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer instrument, a complicated thing, to Mars. It was too heavy, and uh, it would overstress the powers of these Viking spacecraft that was going to carry it there. I, I won't go into the complex details of how it works, but it's a very simple device. It's that sort of thing that lets us know quite a lot about Mars, uh, and it is a most unsuitable place to, to think of colonising. The atmosphere is only a tenth of the atmosphere at the top of Everest. But there may be water underground there. For instance, if you had water there, you'd be... There, there is, some... it, but it's, there's salt or more salt than that in the Dead Sea. Well, it's not going to help you very much. So we've got to doctor our own planet. We can't expect to vacate yes, to our summer residence indeed. on Mars. Mars is no place to go, even if you could get there. <laughs> and uh, getting there is quite a dodgy business. Mm. If you worry about radiation, there's far more of it on the way to Mars than there is near any nuclear power station. Talking to you, uh, I feel that I, I, I'm, I'm talking to uh, the modern equivalent of an Old Testament prophet, <laughs> and that uh, you're a great predictor of the future and an advice for people on all kinds of things. Do you see any role for religion or philosophy independently of science? I do, but I don't know enough about it to know just what the answer to that question is. But you are uh, also a philosopher. You're not exclusively a scientist. You are also a philosopher. I'm Your not books a scientist are... at all. Well, a scientist is somebody... Look at the devices who... on your lap, for God's sake, that yeah. change the world no, no, in many ways. No, these are engineering. A scientist wouldn't have made this. Uh, yes, but an engineer is simply somebody who applies science. You invented these things. I'll tell you the story. Um, I was working on freezing animals until they were solid. Uh, or rather, I wasn't. My colleague was. Cryogenics. Yes. yes. Um, there's only one animal you can do that to and bring it back to life, and that's the golden hamster. Mm-hmm. There's papers on the, 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 the procedure and how it worked in the Royal Society. Uh, but we, we brought them back to life all right, and it led to the invention of the microwave oven and a few useful things like that. How did it lead to the invention of the microwave oven, can you explain? And can you t- I'm going to ask you a really stupid question, James, if I may. Yeah. Were the hamsters you were experimenting on dead? No. So you didn't bring them back to life? Yes. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was very strange. We had a f- priest come to see us, Father Louyer, who was an expert on freezing. And we showed him a hamster that was so so frozen, it was just like a block of wood. If you banged it on the bench, it made a resounding thingamajig. We then warmed it up in uh, uh, what you would recognise now as a microwave oven, and uh, it came to life. Wandered, wandered around unhurt. It hadn't even lost its memory. Why would you want to freeze something and then bring it back to life? There must have been a purpose to all of that. And was it not a little bit cruel on the hamster? Well, that, I was a relatively young 
um, worker in those days at the National Institute for Medical Research in London. And one of the topics they were interested in was freeze preservation of living tissue for operations, all sorts of things. A sensible kind of procedure. Let what's, we, we found out what was the nature of the damage caused by freezing and so on, and how do you prevent it, and uh, what are the techniques for bringing back to life something that's frozen and so on. It's that good medical work. Yeah. Um, that's what I was doing, really. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. But did you not feel sorry for the hamsters? Well, you, you, you're quite right. And uh, I, I felt, I've always felt um, a bit dubious about it. But I'm not sure that they suffered much. But this led to the invention of the microwave oven and also to this movement of cryogenics where people are having their bodies frozen after death. I think that's a lot of wicked nonsense. (laughs) It's hard to get a lot of money for them. Well, there are people doing it, though. Yes, I know. People, when they're dead, they're paying a lot of money to have their bodies put into cold storage in the hope that somewhere, someday down the line, they'll be able to be brought back to life. Well, I hope that my listeners today do not get (laughs) inveigled into such a (laughs) Well, are you slightly sorry that you didn't patent the microwave oven back then? You were using it for a very limited measure. No, I think it's a very important thing. There's an enormous difference in culture between America and Britain. We were absolutely determined at the beginning of World War II and subsequently not to patent medical inventions. They should be for everybody's benefit. This this is why penicillin was not patented. But whenever we used penicillin, we had to pay a royalty to American firms for using our own invention. God. This is not a criticism of America. It, it's their way of living. That's how they get ahead and do things. That's what pays for the development. How do you feel about the future of our species and our planet? I'm worried a bit about the future of our species and the planet. It's in a pretty dodgy position. The uh, Earth does not have to heat up very much before it goes into runaway heating, uh, and that that will be the end of us all. And that would be such a shame, because it's taken what, two billion years or so to get us to this stage, very advanced state where you're recording what I'm saying uh, and all the rest of it. And it'd be just a shame to have it all thrown away just because we got too hot. James Lovelock, thank you very much indeed. And thank you, yes, for coming all this way. I've had a lot of joy from Ireland, from spending... Oh, it must be an aggregate of at least 10 years at Adrigal and uh, on the coast there. I loved it. I had a big birthday party early this week at Blenheim Palace, and I'm delighted to say that several Irish people turned up (laughs) just spontaneously to party. Why wouldn't they? Happy birthday. Thank you. James Lovelock speaking to Mooney Goes Wild in 2019 when he celebrated his 100th birthday. He died on the 26th of July 2022 on the occasion of his 103rd birthday. Until next time, goodbye. Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.